Well, the book that we've been advertising lots recently, uh, The Dawkins Letters by David Robertson, gets another plug tonight uh, in this uh, introduction. Uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's a great, great testimony in the back of the book by a chap called uh, Richard Morgan, who, as he admits in the book, is, was once an avid atheist, regularly interacting with fellow atheists on uh, forums on Richard Dawkins' Um, website. Morgan tells of how he um, became immensely irritated at the point where a certain uh, free church minister called David Robertson, who's a minister of St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, started making contributions to the discussions and adding his input into the debate and, and indeed quoting Bible verses in amongst this. Wow, much to their disgust. But there was something of a turning point that came um, for Richard Morgan. Morgan became quite uneasy with some of the comments made and unkindness uh, by some of those uh, non-believers who were posting on the website. And what he decided to do, and and, and amongst his discomfort was, was that he he wanted to read through David Robertson's posts again. So he printed them all off and read them. And he was so impacted by what he had read and by David's gracious responses and by even the clarity of David's discussion. He offered very, very reasonable responses to some of the things that were being argued on this website. What did Richard Morgan do? Would you believe it? He went onto the forum of the Free Church of Scotland's website and started posting himself. He says uh, that he wrote, went onto the uh, the Free Church of Scotland website and wrote a brief sentence about him basically being a sad atheist and about his desire to believe. And he said, in response, I'm quoting, "In in reaction to my posts, the Free Church of Scotland's resident fruitcake, as they affectionately called David Robertson, asked me two questions that were to change my life. Why don't you believe in God? And what could make you believe in God? Worth pondering if you're here tonight and you're not a believer. Morgan says, though, for him, his knee-jerk reaction to the first question was, well, that's a stupid question. And then the second, he had two instinctive and spontaneous answers. Number one, I don't know. Number two, well, certainly not proof and evidence. And he says that at that point, The words that had always provoked a terrible sensation of longing in him came to his mind. And these were the words, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4. Wow. Those are the words that came to his mind. What does he say on the back of that? My universe exploded. Light, I love this as a description of conversion. Lights came on. Prison doors opened. Scales fell off my eyes. The whole amazing grace thing, he says. He says, as I considered my perception of life, the universe, and everything, it was literally as if I had been looking at a two-dimensional image in black and white, and in an instant, everything became three-dimensional and technicolor. Isn't that great? 
He went from reading the Bruins in wartime to finding Nemo on high definition. Isn't that amazing? What a great description. Short time later, he goes back to his David Robertson documents, as he calls them. Amazed to discover that as he read through this, this list of posts again, that the words that leapt out at him from the pages were biblical references that had previously embarrassed him. It wasn't David Robertson's words, nor the cleverness of his arguments, but the word of God, the scripture that cannot be broken, the scripture that is living and active. What is it that holds the power to give birth to such belief? That question, in a sense, has been answered for us by Richard Morgan, by his testimony. But we don't need to just hear it from him. We can hear it from John, the author of this book, led by the Spirit, of course. According to John, it's these very words, this very record of Jesus' words and his works that can bring people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's these words, it's a consideration of what's contained in the pages of this book that are able, that are living and active and powerful enough to give us eyes to see what before we could not see. Remember, we've often, throughout our series in John, we've jumped ahead of ourselves plenty of times to John chapter 20, 13, 31, which give us the interpretative key. The key that unlocks our understanding of all of John's gospel, where John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in these, this book, but these are written, these words, in other words, an account of his miracles, his works, uh, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So basically, as we approach, or as you approach, whether it's in consideration together of what God's word is saying in John chapter 10, or as you read through John's gospel at your own leisure, or come to it at some point in the future, there's your interpretative key. Well, how does this particular text that I'm reading show forth that Jesus is the Christ, the King? How does it show that he is the Son of God? And what difference does it make to me? It's this, these words, the account of his life and his miracles that hold the power to give birth to such faith. But there's, in a sense, in John 10, something of a, of a bigger question that is thrown into the mix. And it's this, how is it that out of a group of people who hear the same words from Jesus and see him perform the same signs, how is it that out of that group some believe and some don't? Or to return to Richard Morgan's conversion, how is it that out of all of the unbelievers logged on to Richard Dawkins' un online forum, each of whom reading the same living and active word of God quoted by David Robertson, how come only some believe 
and others don't. Well, John 10, I think, gets right to the heart of that. I think what we have in here are perhaps one of the, in the first instance, one of the strongest explanations of unbelief that we have in the New Testament, actually. And for many of us, it's difficult to swallow. And what we will also see right alongside that is that John 10 actually contains one of, perhaps one of the strongest explanations of the assurance and security that true believers know and experience in and through Jesus Christ. What a contrast. It's the black and white Bino. And again, the high definition finding Nemo again. And this, right at the very heart of this, I don't know if you noticed this as we read through, right at the very heart of this text of uh, 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 it's kind of divided into two. It corresponds with this key, the, the interpretive key in, in John chapter 20. They're debating whether Jesus is the Christ or whether he is the Son of God, both of which are mentioned. But what I want us to do is, first of all, walk through that, that, that number one, the, the strongest explanation of unbelief that we have in the New Testament. I've called it unbelievable unbelief. People who are looking for Christ in this situation. Miss him. That's what we see here. Uh, Even when he's right in front of them. It's an interesting thing to explore because if you look at verse 24, the Jews are gathering around Jesus saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Well, behind that question, you, you see, you understand that actually the Jews, they genuinely wanted the Messiah, the promised one of old, to come. And Jesus, by virtue of the fact that they are gathering around Jesus and asking him, well, that kind of tells you that even in his time, he is stirring up quite interest. He's making such an impact for being, as it were, a carpenter from the north. He's having quite an impact in the, throughout Jerusalem. His name is widely known. Even the religious leaders are not happy. They're spreading word, as we already saw in John chapter 9, that if anyone's following after him, they're going to be put out of the synagogue. They're going to be socially ostracized. But they're asking Jesus, gathering around him because he's piqued their interest in some way by his teaching, or at least by his miracles, And they're saying, are you the Christ? Are you the promised king who was due to come? Well, the Messiah, of course, was the one the Jews were waiting for. And I think even at this time, the the air was thick with expectation. You see, even this festival that's mentioned um, in verse 22, this feast of dedication. It's not an official feast commanded in the scriptures. It was actually um, uh, came into being in around 164 B.C., Uh, as a kind of rededication of the temple after um, a very ungodly ruler um, had desecrated the temple, desecrated the worship of the people of God. His, His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. But what happened was there was some warrior called Judas Maccabeus started something of a a revolution, perhaps something like we have seen recently in Egypt and places like that, brought about a real significant change in the way in which the Jews were treated, certainly in the way in which they were allowed to worship. 
I mean, he had desecrated the temple. He turned it essentially into a brothel. There were shrine prostitutes and everything in there. So desecrated it. And then this Judas Maccabees had started this revolution. Pushed all of that back. There were Roman rule, rulers still there, certainly. But it was far more peaceful as well, as peaceful as could be expected in occupation and oppression. So these people, they're desperate. They're, they're looking for this Messiah to come. The air is thick with that expectation. That's why they're asking, are you Jesus, the Christ, the one who is to come? They want him to make some kind of public statement, some kind of clear declaration of who he is. And to those of us, I suppose, who are following through the Gospel of John already in these first 10 chapters, we might find that in a strange in some way, though, though Jesus has only made one real outright claim to be the Christ in conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Yet his teaching and his miracles have really got the message over loud and clear, haven't they? And I think that's what Jesus means then when he responds to them in verse 25 saying, I did tell you. All of his ministry, basically, his words, his works pointed everyone to his true identity as the Christ. And in that sense, he had told them. In one sense, it's kind of obvious who he is. Let me illustrate. I think we can, we can appreciate this by our association of people that we know. I mean, imagine if a little old lady in a nice yellow dress and a hat, matching hat, wearing a, spar or wearing a sparkly crown, pulled up in a horse-drawn carriage outside church tonight. Imagine she was escorted by police or surrounded by, by some serious-looking men with shades, dark suits and little things in their ears, and they're scoping the place out to see if everything's okay. Imagine you saw a grumpy old man beside her. Imagine you saw people bowing down to her and curtsying before her. Imagine you overhear her saying, I have come from the palace and I am returning to the palace. You know who it would be. The queen, just in case you are wondering. But you wouldn't like to think that you would go up to her and say, excuse me, are you the queen? You know, it would, it would seem pretty ridiculous. Everything that is happening around her and everything that she is saying, everything that she is doing should leave you no doubt. Yet how often do we understand that when we see things, there is a human tendency, isn't there? Particularly things of significance to say, what's our first response? No way. Or I don't believe it. I think in the same way, taken together, all of John chapter 1 to John chapter 10 tells us Jesus being sent by the Father in love to proclaim the gospel and to confirm the gospel and his identity by performing signs and miracles. And in doing so, leaving people truly in no doubt. Yet, the problem is, some people do doubt. Some people don't get it. You could say perhaps the problem lay in, in the fact that they're not looking for the Messiah who will bring in all that the Bible promises that he's going to bring in, but they have some kind of Messiah of their own devising. They want a Jesus that will fit the mold that they expect, in other words. That's not uncommon for us, even nowadays, or for our world. But even when you take all of those suggestions into account and 
fairly give them a hearing. I think verse 25 and 26 take us far deeper into this unbelievable unbelief. In verse 25, there's a phrase that's repeated in quick succession. Uh, it's Jesus says, I did tell you, but you do not believe, underline that. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but, here's the underlining, you do not believe. Why though? They're hearing the same message, they're seeing the same signs. What's going on? What explains the blindness of these unbelievers when others see it's this, they are not Jesus' sheep? Verse 26 says, You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, did you see the order of that? It's not, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. It's you do not believe because you are not my sheep. It's hard to grasp that, isn't it? And no doubt we're dabbling in the mystery of election here, and God's choice, something we've already been looking at actually in our Ephesians 1 passages over the last few weeks. But right, I feel right at the heart of the matter as revealed by Jesus Christ from his his own mouth that Jesus is met with widespread unbelief in his own day even as we see it today and the reason back then is the same as the reason why I feel we see it today it's not through primarily a lack of clear and worthy testimony of what the gospel is or who Jesus Christ is John has said I've written these things so that you will believe but rather this is more deeply Rooted in a spiritual blindness and unwillingness to love Jesus that is, it seems, more deeply rooted in God's eternal plan. In Ephesians 4.18, we read they are, unbelievers that is, darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. What we see in here is that there is a kind of deadness to spiritual things which, which so grips the hearts of unbelievers that the affections of some are so completely enslaved to the things of this world that Jesus is effectively saying in this text there are some who will not repent. What kind of difference does that make to us as a church? Oh well, it's all in his hands. Let's not do a thing. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What does Jesus Christ himself do? Upon making such a clear statement such as this, he's already done so in John chapter 6 and in John chapter 8 declaring that he has sheep to call sheep who are his own yet what does Jesus do at all of these feasts he stands up and declares shouts you could say invites if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink he knows the ones who belong to him. We don't. 
our job, our mission, is to offer the invitation full and free to all. Unbelief is, in many respects, as it's laid before us, heartbreaking. It's absolutely unbelievable. As I'm preaching this, the people I love who are not believers are rushing through my head, coming to mind, breaking my heart, and likewise for you. But the question I think that this text also goes on to explore for us is is this. What then happens, needs to happen in order to believe? Well, verse 27 tells us, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. Like last week's sermon in John 10 deals with that. We need to hear the call of the good shepherd who knows his own sheep and we must truly follow him. If we truly know him and know his voice as he knows us, we will follow him. Well, I've met a number of people who indeed fret over this as well, not even not in relation to what we should do as a church or as Christians in terms of our evangelism, but even personally in respect to assurance of salvation. Am I saved? You know, am I a Christian? It's a question that I'm sure we will all wrestle with at some point. I have, and I'm sure I will even at some point in the future. Am I a sheep? (laughs) Well, the encouragement is to turn our eyes and our ears to Jesus and when he speaks to listen and to respond and to recognize if you're drawn to listen and if you're drawn to follow and if you're contrite in heart, if you're deeply gutted by the sin that you continue to commit and if you're calling out to him in repentance and faith and trusting in his blood that was shed on the cross to make it possible for you to do that and then know that he has exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness you keep on going (laughs) you keep on going and you praise the Lord with all your might I like to think of it as one author has illustrated that he, the Lord, with us as we come to him is like a husband waiting for his wife at the airport, watching as each person walks through the arrival's gate. When she appears, he knows her, recognizes her, delights in her, the, the one that is embraced. We come to him because he has loved us first and called us to himself. And we follow him because he calls and we recognize his voice by his grace, not through anything that we have done. Now, not only does this text contain some of the strongest explanations of unbelief, which I am confidently saying that I have not dealt with in all its complexity. It's impossible in this time. But this text also contains one of the strongest teachings on assurance for those of us who believe. Who are asking the questions, am I a sheep? Am I a sheep? Look at what verse 28 describes for us. Jesus has said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. I give them eternal life. And they shall 
What's the word? Never perish. We sing about this often in our services. We're going to sing about it again as we close our service. That Jesus, friend of sinners, loved me yet I knew him. Drew me with his cords of love. Tightly bound me to him. Round my heart still closely twined. The ties that none can sever. Do you grasp this when you sing it? For I am his and he is mine. For how long? Until we let him go? No, because we are always kept in his hand. Oh, until he lets us go? No, we are his forever. We are forever alive in Christ. We are granted eternal life. And we are never lost in Christ. Forever alive, never lost. No one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think this is so important. Can a person lose their salvation? I think this text is a strong no. No marauding wolf, as verse 12 talks about, or no thief or robber, as verse 8 mentions, can harm a the sheep truly because their ultimate security rests with Jesus the good shepherd in whose hands we are safely and securely kept and I don't believe that the life indeed which Jesus ransoms with his blood is ever in danger of going back into captivity because of the effectiveness of the cleansing of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ Because the price that he has paid for our eternal life to take us to himself is, as 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, of infinite value and even imperishable currency. What's more, verse 29 just serves us up with a reminder that to believe in Jesus Christ is truly to be reconciled to God No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Don Carson asks the question in here, who can steal from God? Who has strength or subtlety sufficient to overpower or to outwit the infinitely wise sovereign Father? No one. Because verse 29 says that my Father who has given them to me, Jesus says, is greater than all. What a great picture that is, isn't it? To be kept in your father's hands. My little boy, Will, is just six months old. Almost seven. And I don't know, I, I, I sometimes think in proportions, okay? If, if I was being carried at the kind of height that, that I carry him, in proportion to the size of his little body, growing body, would I feel quite comfortable? I mean, I don't know. If I was, I, I mean, it might be someone as nearly as tall from here up to the roof. Maybe an exaggeration. I think I'd feel quite anxious. And yet, well, in my arms, feels utterly safe. Poor boy. But he does. He has no qualms at all about whenever I throw him up in the air. He knows I'm going to catch him. Well, he's confident anyway. 
And I keep praying every day, Lord, let me keep catching him, you know. He's safe in my hands. Well, even my hands are fallible. It would not be beyond me to make errors. And I'm convicted by my throwing of my son, and I'm now resolving no longer to do so. But the Lord's hands are perfectly safe. The Lord's hands are, hold us in the firmest grasp, yet I believe with the most tender care. And he will never let us go. So brother or sister, if you're here tonight and you've been doubting, if you've truly put your faith and trust in Jesus, keep remembering these verses. Keep going back to John 10, seeing that your life is in him. And bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that you have offered. Now I know the objection comes in here. It's maybe in one or two of your minds already. Well, what about those who have left us? Or deny Jesus having once professed faith? I think it's hard to hear, but I think 1 John 2 verse 9 just gives us a really honest and straightforward answer to that. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. How do we respond to this tonight? How do we respond to what we've seen in terms of one of the strongest explanations in the New Testament of unbelief, one of the strongest explanations in the New Testament in relation to uh, our, our security in Christ. Well, we should take him at his word in both of these things. We should let these, our understanding of these things make us thankful to God for our salvation and make us ready and eager in every day to declare the gospel that wins us that salvation so that other people will know it for themselves. We do simply what Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all. Take God's word in your hands this scripture, as he says, that cannot be broken and turn people to it. For these are not the doctrines that are, that are formulated in the, the minds of mere people. We have clear words. And my encouragement for us is when scripture is clear, let it be clear. And when scripture sounds hard, pray for help in understanding and pray for the faith to trust. For those who are here tonight, who are not believers, maybe you've come with someone, they've brought you. I wonder what you're thinking about all this. I mean, it's the, such a contrast here, isn't there? You, might, you would be right, I suppose, to be quite baffled in a sense to know what's going on. My encouragement for you is to hear this, what John says at the start of his gospel in relation to, an ex which gives us something of an explanation of, again, what's happening here in John chapter 10, that he, Jesus, had come to that which was his own. His own did not receive him, yet to all who received him, to, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that's my encouragement for you tonight to, to hear what he has said. To recognize the importance of coming to him in faith so that you too can know eternal life, so that you too can know the security of being held in his strong but tender grasp, recognizing that Jesus Christ came into this world to die on the cross, not to die for his own sin, because he had none, but he died for the sins of others. I pray that you would see what Martin Luther sees, saw, and wrote in these words, our most merciful Father, he explains, sent his son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men and women. Effectively, we could picture God the Father addressing the son as he hangs on the cross, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer and oppressor, David the adulterer, be that sinner that ate the, fr the fruit of the forbidden tree in Eden, the thief which hanged upon the cross and briefly be the person that's committed the sins of all men. And see therefore that you pay and you satisfy for them what a great and wonderful exchange we see at the cross. Was there ever such love? With a display of such love comes an invitation. Taking into account everything that has been said tonight. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Christ and drink. And living water will well up within the water, indeed, of eternal life. These things are not easy. These things stir up questions. I've taken John 10, 22 to 42, in a short time and I have done my job it's your turn be like the Bereans in Acts 17 please take what has been said tonight away with you examine it alongside the scripture that cannot be broken and see for yourself if what has been said tonight is true let's pray together